Hello and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This week we're joined by Dr Emily Brady, the Broadbent Junior Research Fellow at Christchurch College, Oxford, entitled I didn't know she took pictures, African-American women photographers in the long civil rights movement. Dr. Brady's paper takes us away from the set-piece imagery of the civil rights movement, defined by police batons, fire hoses and snarling dogs, and illuminates more everyday but nevertheless radical sites of social change, such as those captured in Doris Darby's 1968 photographs of a vegetable cooperative in Mississippi. Having completed her doctorate in American Studies at the University of Nottingham, Dr Brady brings to her work a fresh, interdisciplinary perspective that reveals hidden facets of the long civil rights movement and allows for new interpretations of well-trodden historical ground. To start then, I'd like to extend my thanks to Emily for taking the time out of her afternoon to join us today. Marie Puisseguer, a PhD candidate at Cambridge, joined us for the conversation. Marie's work examines the movement of black and white southerners to Detroit during the Second Great Migration and engages with debates surrounding race, gender, class and 20th century American liberalism. Given such expertise, I'd like to thank Marie for agreeing to help out with today's podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and I'm your host, Hugh Wood, a PhD candidate at Sydney Sussex College. So hello and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. It is the 30th. It's slightly warmer here in Cambridge, very blue, very lovely. We are joined today by Marie Puisseguer and Emily Brady, who's come all the way from Oxford. So first off, thank you, Emily, for putting me in and Marie for helping out. So Emily, if you just want to start by introducing your paper, telling us what's going on, who's in it. Um, where we are in the world and the kind of arguments that you're making. Great, thank you so much. Um, So my research and this paper looks at African-American women photographers in the long civil rights movement. Um, So broadly kind of defining the civil rights movement in this paper from the 1920s uh, through to about the 1970s. Um, And the reason I kind of take such a long view of it is I think a lot of photography of the civil rights movement is kind of defined spatially by photographers' right to access certain spaces and documenting people occupying those spaces. Um, And we begin to see a lot of that kind of tradition and aesthetic emerging in the 1920s when a lot of the first black women were becoming photographers, when they were creating their own portrait studios and taking pictures of families in their local communities. Um, So geographically, this paper... uh, takes a lot of my research um, around 18 to 20 different African-American women and highlights four of them. Uh, One portraitist, uh, one anthropologist, one photojournalist and one activist um, and kind of shows how they exemplify this new emerging uh, photographic kind of counter archive. Um, So geographically this paper Um, starts in the portrait studios of the segregated South in the 1920s. Um, It extends as far as um, South Africa with the photography of anthropologist um, Islanda Good-Robeson and her books that she created whilst um, travelling in Africa. Um, And then we're also looking at Los Angeles um, and finally Mississippi in kind of the 1960s. Um, So my hope is that this uh, paper will give a snapshot into four really interesting women and then as I'm planning to do in the Q&A talk about a bunch of the rest as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you very much. So those seem to be coming from like a quite dispersed set of context. So how are they kind of being considered together? Like how does that function as a kind of analytical framework with the four dispersed together, I guess? Yeah, so I think essentially one of the key things that I found when researching the civil rights movement, um, I've always been very drawn to visual history and photography. Um, And it was while I was studying the civil rights movement that I kind of realized that a lot of the photography of the civil rights movement was taken by men. Um, So as part of my PhD research, I did some brief kind of quantitative data and uh, the photographic collections I looked at, less than 1% of them, uh, the the photographs in these books were taken by black women, uh, less than 1%. And I kind of was trying to reckon with I I realised this absence was important Um, and I think as we will discover when we're working on our PhD students I sort of came across this thing that I thought was important and I couldn't quite articulate why Mm -hmm. Um, but I think what is so significant about this absence in this kind of canon of civil rights photography is that a lot of the literature of civil rights movement has undergone waves of revisionist history you know at first it was this kind of top-down classic movement great man theory approach and then uh, gradually across you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s, a feminist history was considered, a local history was considered, an intersectional history was considered. Um, and yet I think in the kind of, the visual representations of the movement and the exhibitions and the uh, you know, photo books that have become such an industry, they're really quite behind the rest of the scholarship. Um, you know, I think if you were to talk about the civil rights movement in general and say, you know, where's the work that's been done on African-American women, there are like hundreds of brilliant scholars that you can look at um but when it comes to looking at well where are the black women photographers uh it's slightly behind that trend i think um so this is something we've talked about a little bit but i was wondering if you could say perhaps a little more about who the intended audience for those photographs were um in the sense of did they have any form of national or local circulation um and kind of like what impact did their hope for them to have yeah that's a great question um so i think to, to talk first about portraiture um i think the audience was very much the families who came to the uh uh portrait studios um so you know bell hooks talks about the importance of home place uh and in some of her writings like Art on my mind she talks about the importance of you know having photographs of your family hung on the walls um of a family home and I think it's important not to underplay the importance of, you know, an intimate familial audience, um, what that can do for ideas of racial pride and dignity. Um, so many of these portrait studios became real community, uh, like, touchstones. Um, so, for instance, one of the women that I talk about in the paper, Elnora Teal, uh, who ran the Teal Photo Studio in Texas, um, her photographs became a real sort of rite of passage for especially women and children in the community to go through. Um, and then as we think about other genres, uh, I think with Islanda Gudbrosen's anthropological, uh, anthropological photography, uh, she published uh, a book um, where she details her travel through Africa called African Journey. Um, and the aim of that book was really to educate the kind of African-American public and disabuse them of notions of kind of African inferiority. Um, So there's a really interesting section in the book where she talks about how 
Um, she's so impressed by, you know, the, the people that she meets, the sort of, you know, elites that she dines with. Um, and she, she says how ashamed she was of when she was um, the, so she, uh, to clarify, Islanda Robeson uh, is the wife of Paul Robeson, who is a famous mm. uh, actor, um, and we probably know him, uh, he was blacklisted for alleged a communist affiliation. Um, and it was while she was traveling that she sort of was reckoning with the role that she played when she was his manager and helping him decide what career path to take. The, he was involved in films like Sanders of the River. So she talks in the book about how, you know, she has inadvertently helped kind of curate ideas of African inferiority. And the book is kind of helping to address that and create a kind of pan-Africanist solidarity. Um, so hers is aimed at a more general audience. And then I think photojournalism-wise, um, this is uh, the woman I'm talking about, Vera Jackson. She worked for the California Eagle, uh, which was run by Carlotta Bass. Um, and this was like a local paper in, the Los, in Los Angeles, but it was a very activist, uh, very kind of early civil rights pioneering paper. Um, so again, kind of a middle class, uh, educated audience, lots of talk about celebrities, um, lots of kind of aspirational uh, black figures. Um, and then finally, I talk about Doris Darby in this paper. And she's a really interesting case study because uh, her work is kind of sits at a two prong status in the movement. Um, Firstly, she was working for SNCC, uh, for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and organizations like SNCC Photo. So occasionally she was being asked to go and take photos of certain things uh, like political candidates or vegetable cooperatives. Um, but very often as well, she would be asked to go somewhere and she would just take her photo with her camera with her and she would just take photos on what was around her. And those were for dissemination to the public in the form of things like pamphlets, posters, um, and more recently, I think, you know, before she passed away in March of last year, she was very involved in curating her own exhibitions and getting her own images out there to a more contemporary audience. Um, so I think in terms of audience, partially why this history is somewhat neglected, I think, is because it, these photographs are aimed at a black audience very often. And I think the dominant civil rights narrative caters to a white gaze. Um, Martin Burge has written about this, how a lot of simplistic civil rights photography, while very powerful and obviously truthful, reinforces a kind of victim-aggressor narrative in which your average white bystander can interpret where they should be and kind of morally distance themselves from what's happening in the photo. Whereas I think a lot of these images, not all of them, uh, but they reject that kind of simplistic narrative. In fact, white people are mostly absent from a lot of these images. Um, and so I think that's the really key thing to take away from the audience, like kind of across this project is that it is mostly, but not always kind of intended for a more African-American audience than most civil rights photography normally caters to. Yeah, thank you very much for that. So um, if we were to kind of juxtapose the vision of the civil rights movement that emerges from the images that you're looking at, how does that differ from the kind of classical narrative that we've grown accustomed to, you know, Martin Luther King, March on Washington, big speeches, great men, etc. Yeah, so I think there are several features of this alternate perspective, um, and different things are emphasised. Uh, I think that the key thing that's different is the work of women is more recognised. 
Um, so for instance, like with Doris Derby's photography, uh, she really shines a light on figures such as Elsie Dorsey, who ran a vegetable cooperative, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, June Johnson. Uh, because Doris Darby is in these spaces with these women and working at the grassroots level, uh, she's able to kind of turn her camera on them and, you know, take these pictures in spaces where other photographers might not be able to. Um, so I do think the work of women in particular is something that is emphasised in these photographs. Um, I think a kind of more grassroots activism as well, as I've kind of alluded to. Uh, it, it's it's important to note that I think at the time, especially of the classical phase of the civil rights movement, the 50s and 60s, the press and the sort of civil rights organisers, there was a very supply and demand relationship. Um, I think that the employ of easily digestible photos and dramatic photos was a tactic um, and it was a successful tactic. Um, so, you know, images such as the images of the Birmingham campaign uh, being a good example of this, these very dramatic images of fire hoses and dogs, um, these are important photos and they should be studied for a reason. Um, but when that's all that there is, it's important to think about, well, these are the photos that, you know, were taken by a white photojournalist who was a former war correspondent who was used to being on the field. What happens if we look instead at the black women who were working cooperatives or working in the Head Start programme uh, or working in the portrait studios? What kind of alternative narratives are being uh, shaped there? Uh, and what kind of institutional or material support these photographers uh, would you say were like received from the civil rights movement? Um, and could you maybe say a little more about the gender dynamics that were kind of at play here? Yeah, definitely. So one one thing that answers this, both of those sides of that element, is that I think over the 20th century, from the 1920s to the 60s and 70s, you see a real kind of shift in the networks that were being employed. Um, so the earliest... Uh, portrait photographers in the 1920s, 1930s, um, the network of, of marriage was really crucial. Uh, so there are several photographers uh, such as uh, who I talk about in this paper, like Elnora Teal, um, who married someone who, a, a man who was a photographer, who trained them in photography, brought them into their studios. Um, so uh, some women like for instance, uh, Elise Forrest Harston um, in South Carolina, uh, they had a, she had a really interesting relationship to her husband, uh, Robert, because he was a portrait for, uh, painter. So they're kind of, he, they married and uh, he sent her to New York to train to be a photographer. She came back, they opened a studio where people would come, he would, she would take their picture, they would leave, and then he would paint from the likeness. Um, so if you look at those photographs, you can see the thumbtack in them from where he would pin them on his easel. Um, but unfortunately, when he passed away after about, I think, 10 years of operation of the studio, um, she ceased being a photographer. The business ceased to exist. Um, and across the 20th century, you know, ev every relationship is different and every woman photographer is different. But there is a kind of be beginning, most women who I found operated within some sort of marital network or at the very least within relation to some sort of male figure or male business partner if they were able to then go off on their own as as did happen like with um Ilnora Teal she started sort of her studio became her own space and her husband had another studio um then that happened 
However, it didn't always happen at that point. Um, so really going into the 30s and 40s, um, around the time of World War II, we begin to see more women photographers in the military. Um, Elizabeth Tex Williams was the first black, women in, uh, black woman in the military. She joined in 1944. Um, and so at that point, we begin to see like marital networks becoming less important. Um, so in terms of support that you know, organizations like SNCC uh, gave, um, SNCC was an interesting organization because I think it was very led by you know financial support and where they were where it was being gotten from. Um, so there was a dark room that people were able to use um, at Tougaloo University. Um, supplies were provided. Um, but I also think there was quite a degree of risk involved for you know black women to be going out into the streets and photographing protests. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important to know. You know, cameras at this time were expensive. Um, a lot of these photos were in black and white rather than color for precisely that reason. Um, and so the idea that, you know, for some women, such as Maria Varela, who was Latina, she's written and spoken about how her presence um, as a Latina woman, but able to sort of pass for white with a camera, could shield protesters from violence. Um, But for black women, I think it would have been a very different story. Um, And so there is a sense which, you know, violence doesn't play a very big part in in most of these images. Uh, It does in some, but not in most of them. And I think that's in part due to the risks of being a black woman. Uh, Again, kind of spatially uh, making these challenges to space, attempting to occupy space. Um, And the kind of risks associated of doing that with a heavy and expensive piece of equipment as well can sometimes dictate the kind of photos that are taken, I think. Mm, Yeah, thank you very much. So um, I'm just a bit intrigued. So we've got a portrait photographer in the 20s, Elnora Teal, and then we've got someone like Doris Darby in the 60s who's working with SNCC at the Vegetable Cooperative. What kind of um, makes a photograph a civil rights photograph? Is it kind of related to its use or is it related to the intent behind it when they were when that photo- photograph was being taken, I suppose? So Doris Darby seemed like they might have been used for um, activist purposes, as you've said, but how is the kind of portrait photography working towards uh, the kind of long civil rights movement or interacting with it, I think is the question I have. Yeah, so there's, I think the two components of that are the uh, spatial... Uh, kind of assertion elements of it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think the two kind of elements of it are the spatial assertion element and this idea of racial dignity that comes across in all of these photos. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of spatial assertion, uh, I think there's the idea that, you know, African-American people have the right to, you know, have their photos taken. They have the right to appear a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, some criticism of the photographs of this early portrait mode are that it's kind of a pictorial standard, it's a white standard. Um, And that's definitely true. Um, But it's about the right to occupy that aesthetic space as well, the right to claim that kind of, uh, you know, apparel and dress and aesthetic for yourself. Um, The act of, you know, dressing your family up and walking to a studio and sitting in the studio and paying for the photo taken that will then be hung on your wall uh, was kind of an in, inherently empowering uh, act. Um, and again, going back to Bell Hooks, I think she classifies these kind of walls that would be created in family homes as sites of resistance, um, as you know, spaces where it was possible to see yourself represented as you would wish to be represented at the time. 
Um, and I think uh, that kind of politics of respectability echoes a lot of what was happening in the civil rights movement about you know the, the way that people were dressing, um, especially in the classical phase of the movement, sort of uh, the way people were dressing, the way people were occupying space, the way people were saying, you know, we have the right to be here. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was both a kind of spatial intervention and an aesthetic one as well. Um, and I think practically um, it becomes about, you know, for the self as well, for the person involved, um, it's a way to implant yourself in a community uh, and a way to sort of serve that community and in a way that they would wish to be served. Um, and I think, yeah, in that way, the art of documenting is in and of itself kind of an act of protest and an act of reclamation. So this next question is more about your own research process and, and kind of writing and researching um, this project. Um, you mentioned previously that less than 1% of, you know, generally published civil rights movement photography um, was taken by African-American women. So the question is quite simply, like, how did you find your subjects and the photographers you were going to look at? Um, and are they all photographers with some level of institutional recognition? And what kind of like archives and documents did you use to approach them? Yeah, so um, the first text that I came to when I was studying this topic as a master's student was Jean Mutasamiashi's incredible book, Viewfinders, um, which is an encyclopedia uh, that was written in the 1980s and then reprinted in 1993 uh, that includes you know, dozens of women photographers uh, from the 19th century to the present day. Um, it's an incredible book. The work and the interviews and the photographic archives that she's unearthed are incredible. Um, and so in doing that, I was really interested in how certain, uh, you know, the, uh, many of the women that she starts with, I was interested more in fleshing out some of those stories because um, her text is incredible. It's quite encyclopedic. Um, and so seeing how they fit within the context of the civil rights movement and then through that research, um, I kind of uh, snowballed from there and to finding other figures. Um, so for instance, uh, El uh, Elnora Teal, who I talk about in uh, this paper, uh, started a photography school along with her husband, where she then traced, uh, trained two other women uh, who became black women photographers, uh, Juanita Williams being one of them. Uh, and they would become photographers in their own right, they would take their own Im uh, images, um, and I think also I was able to sort of piece together some more contemporary literature. Um, so some brilliant work has been published on photographers like Florestine Collins. Um, and through going through various photographic collections, I was able to come across more women uh, like Doris Darby, who wasn't in Viewfinders. Um, so that was like, I can't emphasize enough how important that book was to this research. Um, and then that was kind of the building blocks for me to go off and find other people to sort of supplement it. Um, I think I, I previously have worked with like social sciences organizations on other research projects. Um, so I do enjoy quantitative elements of research as well. Um, so my talk today has some pie charts in it, which I'm excited about. <laughs> um, but so I'm hoping to flesh out that data a little more because um, the sort of less than 1% uh, of like exhibitions was, uh, I did that research a few years ago now and I'd like to kind of revisit and see if there's been any changes. Um, but on the whole, uh, it was very methodically just sort of buying as many photo books as I could um, and sitting there with a big cup of tea and counting them. 
Um, and especially in the early days when I wasn't sure of the identities of these people yet, I was getting really excited because I think, oh, well, this is, I, th I think this is a woman who I haven't come across yet. And then sort of trying to find out what their identity was and some more information. Um, so actually I'm, I'm one of these scholars who this project comes from my undergraduate thesis, which was on women photographers in the civil rights movement. Um, so I, uh, wanted to do the, my undergraduate thesis on black women photographers and I could only find one. Um, so I broadened it out uh, and considered white women and Latina women as well. Um, but basically my whole academic career came from that one moment of, oh, I can't write what I want to write about easily. Um, I was actually at a conference with someone who said, oh, I hate these academics who just have one idea. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so where are some of these photographs now? You're talking about photograph, uh, photo books and some are in exhibitions. But do you think there might be archives kind of tucked away in people's houses that you might kind of tap into in the future, like collections that have squirreled away over the years? Have you heard anything of that kind? Yes. Um, oh, so I think, um, you know, City of Hartman's done a lot of work on like the archive and I think it's important to note that just because these images aren't, you know, in the Smithsonian, um, it doesn't mean that they're not being archived. You know, um, Doris Darby uh, kept, you know, I, I visited her in her home in Atlanta and she had walls of, you know, filing cabinets with itemized things by exhibition. Like she had an incredible catalogue of her uh, photography. Um, so with so many of these archives being in domestic spaces, I think uh, a lot of it is based on trust, um, either with, you know, the photographer themselves or the family. Um, so I know that uh, there is a PhD candidate in the States, um, Alicia Steele, who's currently working with Elaine Tomlin's family. Um, and Elaine Tomlin was a photographer with the SCLC uh, kind of in the late 1960s into the 70s. So following Ralph Abernathy. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that kind of like those relationships about trust are important. Um, and yeah, I think one of the challenges of doing photographic history in particular is copyright um so there is a chapter in this project that i've not included in today's paper because i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to include it and if it quite fits and it's on the women who were in uh, the military uh so elizabeth tex williams uh and master sergeant grendel a howard uh who photographed during the vietnam war um a lot of their images are you know the property of the US military um, having like trying to find them is quite challenging uh, and then there's a sort of grey area between if I do find them are they the property of Miss Williams family or are they the property of the US military mm. um, so there's all these sort of you know ethical questions about using photography uh, and very practical copyright issues as well um, that I was warned about before I got into this field but I don't think I was warned sternly yeah. enough yeah do you want to jump in there? Um, sure. So this is more of a kind of discipline question. Um, but your academic background is in American studies, and you're actually the first person that we're interviewing in this podcast to come out of it. Um, and so I just, what do you see as the kind of fundamental differences, if there are any, between history and American studies? Um, and what would you say American studies can possibly bring to the study of history? Um, that the historical method alone cannot supply? Well, 
Um, I love American studies. I'm so glad that I have my training in American studies, particularly as a photographic historian. Um, I think that, you know, obviously history equips you with various skills, various historiographical skills at undergraduate and throughout, um, as does American studies. But I do think American studies affords a degree of interdisciplinarity. Um, so when I was at university, uh, you know, I was taking literature classes, um, art history classes, uh, straight history classes. Uh, I was avoiding politics, um, but I think it was really important. Uh, and I, I noticed that my history writing improved when I took literature courses and my literature writing included, improved when I took history courses. Um, and I think for me, when I read a photograph, I often apply a lot of literary techniques to it. Um, you know, I think about it as an art history object, as its composition, but at the same time, a photograph is telling a story. And in the same way that literature equips you to read a novel, it equips you to read an image. Um, and so I do think that American studies and the ability to kind of weave disciplines together uh, can be a really, really valuable skill. Um, also, the year abroad wasn't bad either. <laughs> yeah, so we actually did the same undergraduate degree as we've briefly discussed. So I agree with the merits of the kind of interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to ask you a bit more about the training that you've done and how that kind of equips you to read the composition of images and then put forward that analysis as a historical argument. So you use, for example, the way figures are posed or which figure is centred in a particular image um, in order to suggest a certain interpretation of the civil rights movement. I'm thinking here with the, um, I've forgotten who, who took the photograph, but there's a doctor in the background of the nurses in the forefront. Um, so how do we kind of resist the temptation to impose our own meaning on the photographs or other forms of historical evidence that we as historians use, um, particularly in cultural history where like images, music, films um, form a kind of large basis of evidence? Yeah, so the photo that I think you're talking about is Dr. Doris Darby's photo of uh, the Mississippi Delta Health Clinic, uh, where in the background you can sort of see that there is a male doctor, but he's kind of faded, and what's in the centre of the frame is an African American nurse in kind of sharp, uh, you know, sharp contrast. Um, and I, I get this question a lot with photography because I do think that it's important to you know recognise your own internal biases especially with a project like this where you know I'm interested in space and I'm interested in gender it's easy to read that into images um, and try and make them fit even if they don't um, but I also do think that to an extent all history is interpretation you know if you're looking at any historical source or any interview uh, it's easy to read it multiple ways to bring multiple different uh, interpretations to it um, and I think just because an image is a different kind of source it uh, doesn't mean that we can't bring our own interpretation to it. Like, you know, with um, Roland Barthes uh, has talked about the idea of a studium and a punctum, a punctum being something specific with an image that impacts you. Um, and one thing whenever I'm teaching students that I try to teach them is that your interpretation is valid. Um, I actually find it a really interesting pedago pedagogical tool because uh, I think very often with students, especially first year undergraduates, you know, they, they struggle if you put a source in front of them to do a reading of it that's not, they, that they think is correct, that there's a right and a wrong way to read a source. And then I think putting a photo in front of them and telling them about, you know, a punctum, the idea that 
what you think matters, what your emotional reaction is to an image matters, makes them think, oh, okay, I've done that with an image, and then you put a source in front of them, and you think you can do that with that too. Like, your interpretation does matter. Um, I do think it's more nuanced when I am a white woman studying this history, uh, and these are images taken by African-American women. Um, so I do have to be aware of that as I'm analyzing them. Um, but I think very often that focusing on this spatial angle and again, thinking about composition is an interesting way to ref reflect on photography. Um, and if you were to build a more inclusive archive of the civil rights movements, if you had the chance, um, building on your own work or even perhaps going beyond photographs, um, do you have any idea what it might look like and what kind of artifacts might be in it? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think, so I was just at a, um, a brilliant talk uh, around the Roads Must Fall movement in Oxford, uh, looking at a lot of the kind of photography of that movement. Um, and I think that while you can't draw a direct parallel between you know, what's happening today and what's happened in the past, um, there is a dialogue there. Um, and so I think that empowering contemporary artists and empowering uh, contemporary black women photographers to place their work in dialogue uh, with the past, it can be a really fruitful way of doing it. So I'm thinking about some of like Carrie Mae Weems work um, where you can tell that she's kind of taken influence from the past to reflect the contemporary moment. Um, so I would love to do sort of an exhibition that paints around that a little more. Um, and I think being situated in Oxford, as I've just joined Oxford, uh, is a really interesting, again, like a space uh, to have those kind of conversations and those kind of dialogues. Um, but I would have lots more, more money, but it would depend on the budget. <laughs> mm. um, so I'm going to take the final question, um, but it's an insight from Marie. Um, and that's that we're on a podcast talking about photography. Photography is an incredibly visual medium, obviously, and a podcast is not a very visual medium. So if there was one particular favourite image or a striking image that's really stuck out to you um, and that you'd want to kind of suggest that our audience may Google or look up, who would kind of be that photographer? What's in the image? And why has it kind of stuck with you throughout your research? Mm. So... Oh, there are there are so many. I would mention Doris Darby's work. Um, if you were to even just Google her and look at her obituary in the Guardian, uh, there are dozens of images there that are beautiful. Um, but I think the one that's on my mind particularly today uh, is um, there was a photographer again in Texas called Louise Martin, who's not in this paper, um, but she was. She clarified she had a studio and she was, by her own estimation. 75% a studio photographer and 25% a journalist. Um, and she took, uh, I know I've said a lot about like the importance of a counter narrative of the civil rights movement, but she did take photos of Martin Luther King. She took a portrait of him and she took loads of portraits, uh, uh, photographs at his funeral. Um, she was one of the few women photographers at his funeral. And one of the most striking images I found in my research that was in Jean Mutsami's book uh, originally was a portrait of Coretta Scott King taken in 1970. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful photos. It's a close up of Coretta Scott King's face. It's taken, I think it's in a studio, but so the entire frame is her face. 
and her eyes are closed and she's facing the camera um, and it's this somber, um, very, very sad photo. It kind of looks like a death mask, um, but it's almost got an element of sort of Mona Lisa interpretation about it. Like she, her, the corner of her lips are turned up slightly, so it almost looks like you could be, she could be smiling slightly. Like it's, when you look at it, one moment it appears quite peaceful and tranquil, and then the next moment it really does look quite somber and grief stricken. Um, and I think that photo is, based on what we've been talking about, about interpreting photos, um, I think that photo is an interesting case study because its meaning can shift from one meaning to the next as you look at it. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'll definitely giving that a look up afterwards. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, Emily, for joining us. And thank you very much, Marie, for helping out with the preparation and the questions and everything. So I'll just finish there. And uh, yeah, thank you. And that was Dr. Emily Brady discussing her work on African-American women photographers in the long civil rights movement. We hope you enjoyed the episode and take the time to look up some of the photographs afterwards. There won't be a podcast next week, but be on the lookout for one in the near future. I hope you stay well. Goodbye. <laughs>